I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Welcome uh, to everyone. Uh, It's very nice to have people here to talk and very good to be celebrating uh, Timothy Brennan's book on Edward Said, uh, Places of Mind. And very good to be thinking about these things together. Just a brief word about, 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 about Tim. He studied, uh, he, uh, we were just talking about this, he, he studied at Columbia, got a PhD at Columbia, and was a student of Edward Said. Uh, he's currently Professor of Comparative Literature and English at the University of Minnesota. He authored a number of books about a whole a range of interesting things, from cosmopolitanism to music and other matters. Uh, author of uh, Salman Rushdie and the Third World, uh, a book called At Home in the World. Uh, another book called Wars of Position, a book called Secular Devotion, which is about jazz and other musics, and a book called Borrowed Light, uh, Vico Herda and the Colonies. And I think it's right, Tim, isn't it? And a second volume of this volume is due to appear quite soon. So with that, uh, I'm going to ask Tim if he will read a little bit from his book and then talk, uh, talk about uh, the book a bit and then he and I will have a conversation and then we will open up the discussion to everyone. And uh, please do uh, drop your questions into the whatever box you, this apparatus allows you uh, whenever you want to. And we will all look at the questions and then we'll, we will fold the questions into our conversation in the later part of this conversation. So but first of all, we have the pleasure of listening to Tim read a little from his book. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. I wanted to begin by just saying how thankful I am that I'm doing this with Michael Wood. Um, His writing on Edward has been inspiring to me. I've taken much from it. And he knew Edward so well as a colleague and friend that he's the ideal judge, I think, of the accuracy or inaccuracy of uh, my portrait. Well, I've decided for a number of reasons to begin at the beginning. So what I'm reading from is the very first pages of the book. Long after his death in 2003, Edward W. Said remains a partner in many imaginary conversations. For those who knew him, the exchanges when he was alive are missed almost as much as his person. The dark darting eyes, compassionate 
but fiery, of a man capacious and alert, a little daunting and often very funny. I found myself at the University of Madras, South India, in December of the year he died. Leukemia had had its way with him only a few months earlier, and now that he was gone, the memorials began to mount. Invited to speak about his work so far from his New York home, I expected to find myself in a small seminar room, but was led instead to the chancellor's office for tea, a US consular official beside him, both surprisingly well-informed about his writing, then to a lecture hall the size of a high school gym. The rows were vivid with the color of school uniforms and the room alive with an excited bustle. With all the seats taken, many stood along the walls and at the windows, students, community members, and some international visitors. They seemed to want to hold on to anything that had a brush with the man himself. The Egyptian novelist Adaf Suif recalled that young people used to walk up to Said after lectures just wanting to touch him. Moments before I took the lectern, two rows of students at the back abruptly stood up. Their, invention had, their intervention had apparently been planned and began to chant lines from Frantz Fanon's Wretched of the Earth as if at a political rally. The tumultuousness of the event seemed at odds somehow with the more mixed reception Said had received over the years and its third world revolt a little distant from his own shifting positions and divided sympathies. In the previous decade, in fact, Said had threatened to disappear into the front pages, as Martin Amos once wrote about the novelist Salman Rushdie. Having become an icon rather than the down-to-earth and rather insecure seeker he had always felt himself to be. On the other hand, the energy of the event seemed just right for a man who had managed to turn street fighting into cultivated debates in foreign lecture halls. With Said, Palestinians had their urbane spokesmen probing the manias of the metropolis. Supporters of Israel found their malignant charlatan and terrorist. Supporters, uh, scholars of the Orient saw a well-armed foe in the rear view mirror. A non-white diaspora in the universities thanked him for blazing the trail of their own multicultural emergence. Leftists within the university scratched their heads, wondering how someone with his views managed to be so rewarded by the powerful. It had, in other words, become easy to turn Said into a series of placards without depth or nuance. His overall effect, though, was hard to miss. Palestinian-American critic, intellectual, and activist, Edward Said is now considered one of the most transformative thinkers of the last half century. Poet and theorist, cajoler and strategist, he was equally at home in scholarly journals, popular magazines, and mass circulation newspapers. His books and essays are still read in more than 30 languages and admired throughout the world. Said straddled an astonishing number of spheres of influence. He was an orchestra impresario in Weimar, a raconteur on national television, a native informant in Kyrene newspapers, a negotiator for Palestinian rights at the State Department, and even on occasion, an actor in films 
in which he played himself. His career was like a novel, right down to the fatal blood disease over the last decade of his life, backlit by his own writing on personal and civilizational decline. Born in 1935 in Jerusalem, the son of a businessman, he, along with his family, was dispossessed of home and homeland by the British mandate of 1948 and the military actions that followed. A brilliant, if erratic, student and a gifted pianist from an early age, he grew up largely in Cairo, arriving in the United States in 1951. Later, he attended Princeton as an undergraduate and went on to Harvard for his doctoral studies before joining the Faculty of English at Columbia University in 1963, where he remained for most of his professional life. By 1975, his career was already on its way to legend. Endowed lectures and honorary degrees poured in as he launched new fields of inquiry that changed the face of university life. His politics belonged to more than books. Writing might have been their leading edge, but Said was also an original tactician advocating political positions that were at first unpopular, but later taken up by movements on the ground. He made unexpected alliances, carved out new institutional spaces, badgered diplomats and counseled members of Congress, a harsh critic of the US news establishment, and at the same time, a major media personality himself. As he confounded think tank pundits again and again on the nightly news during the inhospitable Reagan and Bush years, he made the university seem to many a more exciting place and professors part of a vital conversation. More than anyone, he moved the humanities from the university to the center of the political map. It was not just that along with Noam Chomsky and a few others, he tore the confidential stamp off the official cover story. But he did it with a personality marked by impatience and vulnerability, by turns angry and romantic, that made the dense and difficult at the same time entertaining. By getting to the main stage with positions that only years before had been beyond the pale, he opened doors to others. Quote, the mighty warrior, the Salah al-Din, of our reasoning with mad adversaries, source of our sanity in despair, end quote, as the Iranian scholar Hamid Dabashi put it. When he took his first university job, the defenders of Israel could ignore the Palestinian cause completely. A decade later, he had invented a new vocabulary and a new list of heroes. Almost single-handedly, he had made the Zionist stance no longer sacrosanct and criticizing it had become respectable, even popular in some circles. For all his writing on exile, he was a rooted man, imaginatively in Palestine and actually in New York, doting as always on its restless, turbulent, energetic, unsettling, resistant and absorptive rhythms. He lived there the longest and despite many opportunities to do so, never left. Place and place of mind were to that degree at odds in him. If along with Chomsky, Hannah Arendt, and Susan Sontag, he was the best known US public intellectual of the post-war period, he was the only one of them who taught literature for a living. 
Said reveled in this fact. In his own mind, literature was not just an avocation, but the bedrock of his politics and the secret of his public appeal. Drawing on unusual sources, ranging from musical scores to medieval Arabic transcriptions, and finding inspiration in the likes of British media analysts and Pakistani socialist poets, he brought the humanities to the center of public life, deliberately reanimating the great books with the passions of war and anti-colonial revolution. As he saw the matter, this was his main contribution, much more than anything he managed to accomplish for the Palestinian cause. No one in the 20th century, at any rate, made a better case that struggles over the meaning of secular texts, not just holy books, affect the destinies of rights and land. Those who knew Said only through his books did not see all of him. They missed his boyishness, certainly, as well as his fierce loyalties to friends, who in turn excused a fair amount of bad behavior, the vanity, the occasional petulance, the need for constant love and affirmation. Even admirers like the historian Tony Jutt, for example, considered him an essentially angry man, although that looked completely past the gentleness many of us saw as he chatted with cab drivers or sat rapt watching the hard-boiled working-class cops of law and order. He was an unpredictable mixture. Said's close friends at times poked fun calling him a cross between Eduardo, a dashing Italian Renaissance intellectual, and Abu Wadieh, after the typical nom de guerre of Palestinian revolutionaries. And probably Said's FBI file actually refers to him as Eduardo Said, AKA Ed Said, seeming to operate under the impression that in 1979, on the eve of the Contra Wars, a terrorist was more likely to have a Latin name. The charge would evaporate under continued surveillance. In fact, the files reveal that the FBI actually plowed through his books and articles for the New York Times, its informants providing faithful summaries for their superiors in the Washington office. Ultimately, their reports left the impression that they found his work rather interesting. A skilled writer, they called him, with an engaging smile and a soft voice whose works quote, have been translated into eight languages, unquote. And they, came, they come off ultimately as rather diffident students. But how long can an aura last? For an author who wrote with a fountain pen, he has been treated surprisingly well by the digital age. The internet is awash with websites, blogs, and short videos chronicling the life of this modern emissary of New York Belles Lettres, who despite such inauspicious credentials, still manages to speak to youth after death. Dressed in the Savile Row clothes of an English gentleman, his image, tweeds and all, did not prevent him from being routinely downloaded from the internet, photoshopped under the t-shirt of an intifada militant and placed on demonstration posters from London to Lagos. By the force of his personality, as much as anything, Daid made literary and social criticism what every enterprising student in the next generation wanted to do and to have. We might even see today's post-critical age as the establishment's revenge on him and the world he so effectively brought about. But one doubts, one doubts the vengeance will ever completely succeed. 
That may be because over three unpromising decades, Said kept the critical spirit alive against such difficult odds and gave it its warmest, kindest, angriest, and most honest shape. Fantastic. Thanks, Tim. That was uh, wonderful. I think, uh, uh, I, perhaps before you say any more about that, I just want to just pick up that wonderful phrase of yours, he was a rooted man, and that clash between places of mind and places that are not of the mind. Can you say a little bit more about that? Well, you know, he, of course, grew up in Cairo, and therefore it was something that crept into his bones and certainly affected his uh, linguistic abilities. But it's important to know that because his father had earlier gone to the United States, he was an American citizen from the day he was born, and that this was something that made him out of place uh, within the Cairo of his upbringing. Um, so he is an American born and an outsider within Cairo for a number of reasons, partly because he is of the Anglican faith, which is a tiny Christian minority within Cairo, mm. uh, partly because uh, he is a Palestinian and the son of a businessman and cut off from many of the everyday citizens of Cairo, which he lamented. But he's also an American and uh, identifies as an American so that when he does go to, to school, sent off, really packed off, uh, having had trouble in his schooling under the British system in Cairo, becoming something of a problem child, he is sent off to the United States in part to keep his American citizenship alive. <laughs> so I think that uh, there were there were multiple reasons uh, why he remained in the United States and did not do what some of the other activists that he collaborated with in his career, like uh, Ibrahim Abdulhod. Uh, leave uh, his professorship uh, later in life and go back to the Middle East and live there. So I would say that New York is his fantasy projection very early in life. He visits it constantly uh, before he comes to live in the United States. It's already familiar to him by the time he finally comes to it. He spends his entire career at Columbia University in New York, although he had many opportunities to go elsewhere. You'd have to say that New York is his home. But of course, New York is a home for a lot of people who don't belong. I've got to say, New York represents the perfect uh, version of this paradox, doesn't it? That, that is, you have to be really rooted in a place that doesn't believe in roots to be such an expert in exile, questions of exile. <laughs> other, people, other people just leave home and forget. Or they leave home and go back. But the, the, New York, in a way, is made in a way for those sort of. It's, it, New York is made for people who arrive and stay, right. rather than it's, the natives don't really count. <laughs> right. I mean, another way of looking at it too is that the the title that he had given his memoir, that eventually was published as Out of Place, was uh, not quite right. That was his title right up until the time it went to press and. When you think about it that way, it's this this notion of Edward being associated with the theme of exile uh, takes on a different coloring. This isn't so much about being from one country and yet living in another. This is more about being at odds with yourself and feeling awkward wherever you are. Uh, and I think that that is the more one gets to know Edward and see the, the kind of torturing of himself that he did in part to push himself on to 
you know, do more, um, you, you, you realize that this is really probably the proper name for his memoir. You know, not yeah. quite right. And it's just the last word of your book, the last words of your it, book. It is. It is yeah. <laughs> it's also very rather English, I think, the, the not quite right sort of tone. Isn't it? Yes. The, the, it the, is. The balanced yeah. position too. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, I have lots of other questions too, but let, let, let's talk a little bit about how you how you came to start on the book and some of the adventures you had when you were researching it and then writing it. Okay, well, it begins really with a phone call. Um, I had known about the really well-known um, literary agent in New York named Andrew Wiley because he was hey, Salman Rushdie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was Salman Rushdie's uh, agent. And I, when researching the book that I wrote on Salman Rushdie, I, I knew about Wiley. So I'm sitting in my office working on this second volume of uh, a, a book that I was working on called Borrowed Light. I get this call and it's Andrew Wiley. <laughs> Which doesn't happen every day, and he, uh, <laughs> you know, and and he says there's interest among commercial publishers in New York uh, for uh, an intellectual biography of Edward Said, and I hear you're the person to do it. So um, I I really did have to think about it. It was a tremendous opportunity, of course, but it was also a huge obligation, and I was, as I say, involved in this other book. So I thought, well, at worst, it will be a three-year delay. Well. <laughs> Uh, six years later, I was still at it, and I had to rewrite the book three times. So the first adventure, I suppose, is just learning how to write a biography. I'd never done it before. Um, this meant first wading through, I think, a very disorganized uh, Columbia archive, uh, basically hundreds of cardboard boxes stuffed with manila envelopes of essay drafts and his own fiction and correspondence, and most of that is boring and routine. but still necessary to plow through in order to get to the gem or two, you know, buried within. And then there's the problems of how to fill the gaps when, you know, over the span of his career, technologies change and there's no longer handwritten or typed letters that you're dealing with, but now it becomes faxes or, or emails or even transcribed voice report recordings, right? Yeah. So, and then, you know, to try to find what, what other archives would be relevant to the project and in, in my uh, experience, the ones that were the most uh, yielding, the ones that really uh, gave me uh, the most were his student transcripts because they were uh, at three different schools, uh, Mount Hermon, Princeton, and Harvard, because they were filled with very private, very sensitive information about his health, his psychological profile, uh, his grades, uh, what he thought he was going to be when he grew up, what he was studying, um, that other researchers on Said have um, never had access to. So these, these helped me to trace the disparities between the way he saw himself as a young man and the way others saw him in the very same years. The FBI files, which were also another fascinating archive, were very easy to get, but frustrating because they were, as you'd expect, heavily redacted. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that there's, there's a number of things that arose out of these for me that uh, surprised me. There's as compelling and novelistic as his memoir, Out of Place, is, it gives us almost no information about his sisters, about his um, explosive and intellectually engaged first marriage to Myra Janis, about his traumatic head-on car crash with a motorcyclist in Switzerland, about the true nature of his relationship with his music teacher in Cairo, Ignaz Tigerman, and a lot of other matters. 
um, it also gives us, I, I think, a very troubled, very dark portrait of his father that the surviving documents and contemporaneous witnesses simply do not bear out. So to read these student transcripts, which among other things involve letters of application that he wrote, they're very revealing. I mean, we, we get to see for the first time the nature of the little boy that is uh, heavily filtered, I think, in the account that he left us in his memoir. Probably, you know, it's worked over but, and importantly altered, but probably uh, unconsciously by him. Um, yeah, go ahead. Now, you, you speak of the, of the special challenge of the intellectual biography. Right. When, when, you, th when you were thinking, what, what, what would be, I mean, actually, biography itself is a challenge, obviously, for the reasons you just said, but what would be the special challenge of an intellectual biography, or what is an intellectual biography? Well, it differs, doesn't it? I mean, there are many models that I looked at to try to uh, determine how to go about this, but the Edward that I studied with and the Edward that I first knew uh, was someone I knew to be deeply invested in difficult books of philosophy, music theory, and linguistics. Um, I believe that this formed him intellectually and that in order to understand how he was effective politically and as a public intellectual and as a charming and urbane media presence, one has to understand what these ideas are and why they affected him and what he did with them. So my special challenge, obviously, was to be true to these ideas while ending up with a book that a general public could read, <laughs> you know, <laughs> thinking, thinking in terms of uh, members of Palestinian student organizations or mainstream historians or journalists. They all have a stake in his legacy, yeah. but know very little about his intellectual points of departure. So I, I, saw, I saw the whole endeavor, actually, as a kind of test to see whether I could pull it off, or to get a book of you this did. sort placed with a commercial publisher. You know, this was a personal challenge that got me going. Yeah, yeah, no, because I think it's, it's that is one of the, one of the pleasures of reading the work is that is that it's it's very um, there's plenty of content, plenty of intellectual content, and it doesn't it doesn't simplify, it, it, and it doesn't talk down to people, uh, but also it situates these things in quite complicated different situations. How how about how about the 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 Journeys abroad. How about the family in, in Cairo? The sense of your sense of the city and things. Did you know anything about Cairo before, or did you? I I knew very little about Cairo, and I actually did not visit Cairo. I, ah. I persuaded myself that that was not as necessary as spending time in Beirut. So yeah. I I think it would have been impossible to write the book without going to Beirut for a number of reasons. I mean, one of them is, of course, is that his surviving sisters. One of his sisters died, but his surviving sisters all lived there. Um, but it is his second home after New York. This is the place that was his, uh, going to, yeah. his, I don't know, his, yeah, his point of departure, the place that was the stepping off point in order to acquaint himself with the early politics of the PLO and make contacts there, largely through his uh, wife Mariam's uh, family connections. Mm -hmm. um, it is a place that he seriously considered relocating to. He scoped out uh, a position uh, at an institute that was actually unaffiliated with the American University of Beirut, but this was the place that many intellectuals uh, who mattered in the Middle East would come and congregate with others from around the Middle East, the only place where kind of free interchange and exchange took place. There's the fact that 
the American University of Beirut, which is where he would have taught had he relocated there, is, although founded in the 19th century by Christian missionaries, the birthplace of Arab nationalism. It is uh, almost mythical in its uh, dimensions. Uh, and you can't really get a feel for that unless you go there. And, and because of its political importance, you conjure up, at least I conjured up, mental images of it being a sort of rundown place with broken windows and uh, decaying buildings. And what you find when you go to AUB, along with the general beauty of Beirut, you know, this architectural wonder of, 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 of houses and buildings that sort of tumble down to the sea, um, is that it's it's an absolutely spectacularly beautiful campus. It looks uh, like UCLA, but better, uh, palm <laughs> trees, palm trees and all, you know. So I think that to get the feel of Edward's key moments in Edward's life, when he got to know other intellectuals, to understand something about that, that international exchange that is available in the Middle East only in Beirut, yeah, uh, is is something that one needs to have gone to see, and that was really important for me. Yeah, and also, uh, to, you could say a little bit about the business of being a Christian Arab, which I, because this this in a way, in many people's uh, views, is itself uh, uh, not even a possibility. And so, here was a person who lived that possibility. Well, um, a lot of the leaders of Arab nationalism have been uh, Arab Christians, actually, and uh, the most yeah. influential figure probably on his life, uh, two of the intellectual figures uh, that preceded him, um, that influenced him profoundly, were both Arab Christians, uh, the uh, husband of, uh, the cousin of his of his mother, um, uh, uh, Charles Malik, and uh, Constantine Zureik, who are both, they're, they're monumentally uh, important in the Arab world. I think that the thing about Edward is not so much that he was a Christian, but that he was a Christian of a very, very tiny sect within uh -huh. uh, Arab Christianity per se, mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and one that was loaded with symbolism. He was an Anglican, and uh, that is the language of the occupier in Cairo. He would uh, go to school, uh, sorry, he would go to mass once a week in the cathedral in Cairo, which was sort of the home base for mm -hmm. Uh, the, the British occupiers. So it's, uh, it's it, it, the fact that his father also supplied the office equipment for uh, the British uh, who were denizens of Cairo uh, adds another sort of inflection. The thing I would like to emphasize maybe even more though is that um, he would joke very often with people who would ask him about his being Arab and Christian and say that he was an honorary Muslim. <laughs> and and by this it means that for the ignorant, which means most of the people who discuss these things in the West, the being Arab is automatically associated with being Muslim. Mm -hmm. Not it's not entirely wrong in the sense that Islam as a religion is much more than just a religion. It's not something that people you know subscribe to the faith of alone. It's also part of the culture of the place, I and mean, it's deeply uh, in. In, in, imbued in every, everyone who's grown up there. And this would be something he proudly claimed. But being Christian, he could act as a particular kind of emissary mm -hmm. in attempting to make the point that we have a problem in our media coverage and in our intellectual attitudes towards the Middle East that has lately been given the name Islam, you know, Islamophobia but which I think in an early book of 1980, he really is the first to have put his finger on. 
So he's the one who can who can say this because he's not Islam, Islamic. Not that, yeah. He also said he was the last Jewish intellectual, didn't he? <laughs> Do you want to say something about the context in which he said that? He said it twice, and he said it both uh, tongue-in-cheek in part, um, but, but uh, very advisedly. He was at a forum, and um, there's a well-known uh, Israeli journalist named Ari Shavit who was uh, trying to make the case that all of the damage that had been done in the warring between Israel and uh, Palestine should be forgotten, and we should pick up from where we now are and move on, right? And a woman uh, from the audience who herself was Jewish stood up and said, what are you saying? Isn't uh, the thing that we've been trying to emphasize as Jews for so long never forget? And now you want the Palestinians to forget their history. And it's at that moment that Edward stepped in and said, allow me to be the last Jewish intellectual. Hmm. I think what he's trying to say is that, you know, the moral high ground belongs to those who adopt the pro-Palestinian position and are critical of the exclusionism of Zionism. And those intellectuals who are attempting somehow to shunt that critique to the side or to smooth it over are not following in the footsteps of the great intellectuals who were Jewish in the past. You know, yeah. think, of, uh, think of the iconoclasm of uh, Spinoza or uh, you know, the revolutionary uh, defiance of, a, of, a, of Lev Davidovich Bronstein, uh, AKA Trotsky, and a number of others, right? So th these people are the people that he emulates and that he's embodying in taking a chance and sticking his neck out uh, as yeah. these Jewish intellectuals did in the past. And also, also representing the idea that, that, that the, um, the being, in a way these names, uh, Islam, Jewishness, Anglican in a way, they, they, they form people, they're part of history and their realities in all kinds of ways. But in the end, uh, what you choose to be is a role. It, and is, is, a, is, a, is, a, is an area of action Otherwise, you're simply re replicating uh, destiny of some kind. Of course, that's the way all the stereotypes work. Is that this is what these people are because they have to be, and they're never known to be different. Whereas everything in Edward's thought, I think, and including all the contradictions, uh, point towards the idea that representation, you, the same thing can, the same uh, effigy can represent many different things, or the same words can represent many different things, and that and it's a choice. We actually have a choice in these in these matters, and we should exercise. We should think and we should exercise our, our freedom of choice and, and, and not give in to these sort of stories that seem to imprison us into I had to do it because or they had to do it because. Or to create counter stories. I think that one of the ways in which his literary critical background feeds into his political positions, there's many ways to, you know, to approach this particular problem, but he very famously uh, wrote an essay called Permission to Narrate in which he makes the point that you know, the war, not the war, but the, the conflict between the occupiers of Palestinian land in Israel and the Palestinians is in part being, being, being waged and uh, eventually won in narrative in the following sense, that most people in the public in the United States are filled with a series of, uh, or very familiar with a series of narratives that uh, Israel has managed to project through the uh, 
film Exodus, for example, or the uh, dashing military leader with an eye patch, you know, Moshe Dayan, and you know, all, the, all these stories that, you know, Martin Buber and the kind of uh, secular sainthood that, you know, he represents. And there's a number, Anne Frank, and, you know, there's all these stories that so people can easily identify with it, but they, there are no stories that are counterparts among Palestinians. So narrative is not just a question of the telling of stories in fiction. A narrative is an important political way of explaining your position to broader publics. Yeah. You raised also the question of representation. I mean, you could make the argument that one of the primary things that the book Orientalism is about is the problem of representation, which a literary critic would understand in a very specific way. It means that there's no immediate transference of meaning from my idea to your head. It, there's, a, there's a medium, and that is the image or the word that I use. And there's a lot of mischief that happens in that trans, transfer from the one to the other. So he's trying to make the point very often in Orientalism, among other places, that representation is not merely a reflection of reality. It's a part of reality. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It needs to be treated as such. I think your your whole chapter about Oriental is very good because th this is the this is the book that everyone I was going to say uh, well, it's everyone wanted to misunderstand it <laughs> led to their own misunderstandings um, and it is it is a difficult complex book but but this idea is very strong in, in the book I, th I think is that that the to put it very very crudely they the the if if the West decides it needs to deal with first first if the West decides it needs something called the East. In order to call itself the West, it needs an East. Mm -hmm. uh, secondly, it needs it needs to know as little as possible about the actual East, because it puts a figment in the place of that, and then it can claim to be an expert. This is this is Edward's uh, complaint about Bernard Lewis. Then you can claim to be a, an expert on the figment, and you are an expert on the figment because you made it up. Right? <laughs> so there's no problem here, except with the the real people. The actual people have disappeared under the shadow of this of the shade. Yeah, and I it's, think a, it's, a, it's, yeah. it's a quite complex operation, but we, but but we are doing it every day. This kind of thing. I, I think of it now in particular. Every, you turn on the news uh, as, as this morning. I had several versions of the story where where there's a we and the we knows who they are, and we don't like who they are, uh, and that's why they always behave exactly the way we dislike. Right. 
don't have any option yeah. behavior you know so it's very powerful stuff and i think to to dig into that and just raise the question is goes i always felt about the book that it goes a long way beyond i mean beyond orientalism into the question of any structure like that where there is a we say men and women or say us say classes or whatever or say races there's an us and the us needs fictions about the about the they yeah it's a mar marvelous marvelously effective circular logic yeah yeah, and, and if you if you have the power to do it, so it does become a, that permission to narrate was in the LRB, I think, wasn't it? I think that piece. I think it was, yes. That that the that there's a wonderful irony in that permission to narrate. Liz, we don't have permission to narrate. Who would give us permission? Well, I'm afraid the enemy is not going to give us permission because the whole point is to withhold permission. And in fact, right. you have to access if you didn't need permission. That's the only way. That's what in a way what cultural imperialism is about. Isn't it? It's about being able to some extent to talk without permission yeah. yeah very powerful stuff i think just one quick i think we should we should open up to questions i think uh, uh tim but just one word about the about this what you, the what you call theory fever at one point edward's sort of enter entry into it that and out of it is sort of an interesting moment in his life i think so yeah. i think well you know this would probably be that aspect of, of edward's career that most of his readers globally would have the least patience uh, with i think that's a mistake one one has to understand what he was doing when he got interested in these marvelous philosophers and uh social and linguistic theorists primarily from france uh in the in an early part of his career English studies was in the doldrums. Most people were completely intellectually vacuous in the way that they approached texts. This movement called the New Criticism had been there for a long time, and basically it was telling students that you didn't need to know anything about history, you didn't need to know anything about the biography of the person writing a book, just sit down there and, and study the form and structure of usually a poem. And so th there was something more intellectually alive in Europe that he wanted, for that reason alone, to inject into the American scene. It's important to remember, though, that at the time that he was doing this, these writers were still kind of in the middle of their careers, or, yeah. or even the beginning of their careers. These people were not dead. They weren't like venerated texts that had become part of the canon. He was there trying to say that these people in Europe are saying something about the nature of language and the way that language mediates our social relations that is terribly important. Now, it, it might be very, very challenging to understand, but that's why I'm here. You know, I am a New York intellectual, meaning that I have, along with some of my colleagues at Columbia, uh, a desire to write for the popular organs, including the New York Times. Uh, and, and and crossover journals like Partisan Review at the time. So he is very, very eager to write in an accessible, an accessible way about these challenging philosophers, basically translating their ideas to the readers of the New York Times. It's a very interesting thing. It is an arcane. Um, yeah. So, so, um, so yeah, and it's, and it's still like, it's, it's unfolding, right? It is not yet finished. So he doesn't know exactly where this is going. And, and primarily what this idea, the idea that he gets from them, there's many ideas, but I think the one that is dearest to my heart is that um, the critic is not to the author 
what Howard Cosell was to Muhammad Ali, right? Kind of the straight man, right? And prop. Right. The, the, critic, the critic has their own importance. And, you know, the, the critic asks questions differently. They're, they're addressing the public in a way without the filter and, and I don't know, you might, you might say the evasion yeah. of fiction. And, and, and this is something that he wants to hold on to, that the critic is as important as the author. Yeah, I think that's perfect. Like, I can attest to that too, Jim, since I remember in the 60s going to hear Edward give talks about Lacan or about whoever it was. And my initial reaction was, why is he, why is he spending his time summarizing the work of these guys? And for a while, I didn't get the whole theory thing. And then I realized it had to do exactly with what you say. It was that the theorists, abstruse or not, uh, were asking real questions. And, uh, the, 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 the establishment was not only not asking real questions, they weren't asking any questions at all. The assumption was that, you know, that, that, that we got it right and we'll teach literature in this way and we'll never have to think about it again. <laughs> and I think graduate students hated this. And that was why in, in America, the theory revolution began with graduate students saying, why are these people just repeating the same old things? I mean, I'll tell you one quick anecdote about it being as an oral in, in oral exam at Columbia, the, the, the sitting around a table talking about D.H. Lawrence. And somebody starts talking about dish Lawrence and rabbits. And they move on from rabbits to foxes and from there to horses. And I'm just thinking, this is the idea of complete idiocy. Literature, literature has gone crazy. And then finally got crazier when one of my colleagues said, um, are there any other animals you'd like to talk about? <laughs> <laughs> that was, that was the whole point of theory. <laughs> right. Trivialization. Yes, so but let's look at some questions here tonight. I need to okay. print raise more here. Um, first question, uh, would you agree that, that, uh, that Edward was a man of all things, multidisciplined, multipolitically and multi-emotional, a true humane man? I think the way I would answer that is to say that Edward was uh, a partisan of what I would call, have called, uh, intellectual generalism. So mm -hmm. what do I mean by that? What I mean is that one of the reasons that literary critics like, like him are able to enter the public sphere politically and also talk knowledgeably about music, about anthropology, about geography, and so on, is because of the particular way that he apprenticed himself in thinkers before him who were literary scholars who understood literature to not be just the imaginative works of novels and poems. He, he loves this word philology, which literally means the love of words, but is often associated, certainly was at his time, with a very arcane, technical, specialized study of comparative grammar and linguistics, usually set in antiquity, right? So this is the association that one has with philology, but the people that he was learning about philology from, people like the, the German critic Erich Auerbach, but, but also the people who are even further back, an 18th century uh, Neapolitan thinker named Giambattista Vico, who's very important to him, or, or even the medieval, um, the 14th century Maghrebian scholar Ibn Khaldun. These, these are figures who very explicitly, this isn't just his interpretation, are saying, no, philology, the study of literature is the study of all the works 
that are the product of human choice. So he is railing, that is Edward, he's railing through much of his career against the notion of the, the specialist, right? The specialist intellectual. Why? Well, because he's had a lot of uh, experience going on to the uh, news shows in the evening, debating the likes of Gene Kirkpatrick and uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, where someone like him, a professor of literature who's talking very knowledgeably about the Middle East, is uh, basically silenced by their bringing on a pundit who works from some you know, think tank in Washington. He is viscerally opposed to this notion of specialization. Not, he's, not, he's not advocating dilettantism. He's, he's advocating the bravery to draw on the different disciplines and to concertedly and in a focused way apply them to a certain problematic because unless one does so, you cannot really understand the broad connections that take place in society. What uh, his, his uh, uh, favorite literary critic, uh, Georg Lukács, called the totality, right? So gen intellectual generalism is a methodology that he promoted and did a great deal to, to explain the importance of. That's terrific, Tim, thank you. Here's a question about music, Tim. Um, uh, Said's writings on music seem to be striving exquisitely to write with emotional fervor music, but not quite able to express himself emotionally. Do you feel this? I think I, on balance, would disagree with that. I, it's not that I don't understand the comment, but I think that that he, he, he first of all, he, he his first intellectual engagements in his entire life were musical, not literary. So the first mm -hmm. serious books that he reads in Cairo as a young boy are, you know, the histories of opera and, and uh, uh, encyclopedias of uh, classical music. He also at a certain point got good enough at piano to seriously contemplate a career as a mm -hmm. concert pianist. When he has already established himself as a literary intellectual and a political intellectual, and it's no longer going to be the case that he will primarily address music, he sees music as a way to express certain sides of himself that he can't express professionally as a critic of, of literature or of literary theory. So what, what I find actually in his music criticism is an unrestrained Edward, mm. that is somebody who feels free to indulge in aesthetics in a way that he denies himself when he's writing about literature and philosophy for all kinds of complex reasons. He also, because he's not in the profession of music and isn't going to bear the brunt of people's retaliation at his uh, severe judgments, he is completely unrestrained in his uh, hammering uh, away at, at, at what he dislikes among certain performance. The, the language is really quite beautiful, but also violently uh, expressed. So it, it, it's, it's this, it's this outlet and, and escape in some ways from, and yet purely intellectual, not purely, not purely intellectual, but very as much intellectual as his other work. And yet it's, a, it's, it's, it offers him a certain kind of freedom that he, he wouldn't get otherwise. That makes very good sense. Uh, I mean, I, I think of that phrase he uses in musical elaboration about, about when you're playing, you're playing Brahms, you think about playing Brahms, and then he says, there's something, there's something, you're, you're, you're away from everything at that point. Then you talk, you're listening to his music. But, you, but you're listening to the music of his music. And I always think of that as a kind of 
not a denial of politics of, of literature and art, but a sense that within a within a political world there are oases of time and place when you 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 can actually forget about not just politics but everything else. And I think that's what you're saying is that the music is is the privileged place for that. I think. Yes, it's still, yeah, it's still, I agree. Still in the world, but but it's that the music of his music is not the same as his music. <laughs> but it would also be hard. It would be hard to overestimate his knowledge of classical music. I have personally witnessed him several times uh, in in public talks where uh, on music, where you know musicologists in the audience attempted to trip him up, you know, and uh, they they failed miserably. Uh, yeah. When I when I interviewed Daniel Berenboim, um, remarkable interview. He plied, he plied me with wine for an hour and a half and told me how much he loved Edward. But one one other thing he said was Edward knew everything about music. He, he knew more about it than almost everyone I've collaborated with in my entire career. Here's a very different sort of question, um, Tim. Uh, how do you think Saeed would have countered the, the UK Labour Party's current position that to use the term Zionism and Zionist are anti-Semitic? I think that the kind of response that he would have is not unlike that that many other people would have. He would, of course, probably say it with more authority and more eloquently, but the idea would be that the the critique of Zionism is the critique of an official ideology of what is, after all, a state, a political state that is in some ways uh, a very unique one, one that he is very keen to point out has never defined publicly where its borders begin and end, mm -hmm. uh, which, of course, you know, leads to all kinds of suspicions that they are expansionist in their designs and desires, uh, a frequent violator of international law. Uh, a pariah state, I would say, in, in many ways, up until the recent past, where some of that is now beginning to change. So the critique of a political state must open itself up or, or must be applied, it seems to me, to the kind of critique that any state opens itself up to. It is not a question of the faith of the, the majority of the people who happen to be citizens in that state. So I'd say that the the line should be a distinction between the, the freedom of religious faith and the notion of uh, civic and, and international uh, legal responsibility. Thank you, Tim. That's very good, very clear. Uh, here's a question. Uh, to what extent did Saeed later repudiate or come to question the kind of theory he helped to popularize, Foucault, etc., within the academy? There's quite a bit about that in your book, isn't there? But perhaps you could say something about that. Um, there's a number of ways to approach this. One of them has to do with his experience and success at being able to translate his ideas for broad publics. The influence of Foucault, although originally very, very positive from his point of view, was one that took a certain form in the American Academy that perhaps not as much as the borrowings from Jacques Derrida, but nevertheless a true there, turned out to be laden with jargon and filled with uh, assumptions that not only did not easily communicate, but also became enclosed, very much like a, a religious faith, and, and therefore became brittle and intractable. 
and and I think that this probably more than anything, in other words, the reception of Foucault more than anything, made him abreact to it because of the form that it had taken in the American Academy, which resulted in what he would have thought of and called an abdication of the political responsibility of intellectuals. Specifically, I would say when it comes to Foucault, though, that there's there's differences that he begins to specify and, and articulate and, and maybe even recognize for the first time himself in writing Orientalism that he refers to in the uh, opening pages of Orientalism. That Foucault's uh, ideas, although it is obviously focused in many ways on the, on the uh, non-normative and the uh, oppressed, uh, the people in prisons or the people in psychiatric clinics and so on, which, which gives it a, a democratic ethos, uh, Foucault is entirely wrapped up in the notion that history is not made by agents. Uh, it's not uh, people who consciously choose their traditions, who feel a responsibility to go out and, and, and get involved. Uh, that is uh, very, very consciously effaced in the writing of Foucault. And he cannot abide this. It's something he really disagrees with. His notion is that we make ourselves as intellectuals by consciously choosing our traditions and carrying them forward. So this is a big uh, point of uh, uh, disagreement between them. Yeah, uh, that's very interesting, Tim. Thank you. And now, uh, uh, here's, here's another question. I'm, I'm struck by your characterization of post-critique and its rejection of the hermeneutics of suspicion as a kind of revenge against the legacy of Said's intervention. Could you talk a bit more but how Said's own hermeneutics developed and the role of politics in his literary critique. That's a very, very long topic, but I can address myself at least to the uh, first part of the question, which is that I don't think it's controversial to say that we are in a post-critical age, at least within the academy, although I don't think it's only in the academy. I think it's also true in mu museum curators and people who write about art history, uh, doing away with the idea that one would interpret a, a work of art uh, to find its meaning. Instead, the uh, current interest, at least among some, is to let the aesthetic experience wash over you without thinking too much about what it might mean. But, you know, there's obviously in the work of Rita Felsky and others a conscious effort to try to scope out a post-critical uh, agenda in order to call into question the constant tussling and disagreement that always takes place when people argue over interpretations or take positions. Um, so I think that this, this, this climate is one that, even though Edward has been dead for some time now, is one that he foresaw. And he, he, he didn't associate merely with trends in the humanities wings of the uh, academy either. He saw it as part of the technocratic center of American culture that was really a threat, as he put it. This is a near quotation, a threat to a critical thinking as such. In other words, it isn't a question of disagreeing or agreeing on a, on a given position. The idea is the attack is on the ability to formulate critical thoughts and to approach things critically. Uh, this is under attack, and I think it, it, it's not unfair to say that in movements of post-humanism and, and other related movements, uh, the digital humanities, uh, for example, that uh, this is a post-critical reaction against the 
enormous influence he had in the academy and turning people more and more towards critical public intellectuals. It, I mean, I struck, it struck me to me in relation to this, a wonderful phrase you have quite late in the book about, about who, who, who owns the media real estate. And I hadn't really thought of that in that, that term. Who, 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 who are the people, not who does the thinking, but who are, who are the people who pretend to think and occupy all the space where the thinking ought to be happening? Yeah. Which is a kind of media move, isn't it? And that, so it's like instead of uh, having intellectuals, you have these, you have think tanks, you have uh, movements, you have slogans, and there's a whole chunk of it. Anyway, exactly the opposite of what Edward was interested in, and what sort of proves him right. But I hadn't really thought of those in that those chunks. Like it, it, it's it, it's real estate, and somebody else has got it. Right? Which is just one other instance of the geographic and spatial metaphors that uh, can be found all through Edward's, Edward's work. I think we're, we're about reaching our time since I'm reading. Uh, no, hang on. Yeah. It, it, it's, I, think it's the, I think the machinery is talking to us, but it's okay. So uh, we, we, should, we should close though, Tim. Any, any last words you'd like to? You'd like to no, except I, I really enjoyed our conversation. I just would say that there's so much more to talk about. I wish we could. Yeah, we could I had all kinds of stuff here, and I think the I was, one one last thing though about the joke about uh, about teaching a, a course on feminism with Akil Bilgrami. Perhaps you could just tell that story, <laughs> because I think you're right. That is, there's something there's something resolutely male and non-feminist about Edwards and his work and everything, as it was for a whole generation, on, including yeah. me. But but the but also that he he. He does cite a lot of women, and intellectually, he was very, as you say, very keen on the work of Julian Rosen. So there is a kind of there's a, there's a, an interesting role of women in this thing, in 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 the spaces of his mind, which is a very interesting thing to think about. The story is also interesting. The story with the drama. Yeah, I mean, I think that he he is someone who surprisingly um, wrote a great deal about women and depended very much on uh, the leadership that they provided him in certain uh, areas of his interests. For example, Rose Sabotnik is one of the new musicologists who was interested in, in turning music away from, you know, the salon and uh, out into the world. And she is somebody who's a frequent correspondent and somebody he's constantly citing and somebody who has endorsed his own writing on music. Gillian Rose, the great uh, sociologist and, and, and philosopher. Um, so these, these would be people, but there are people who were around him, women, uh, intellectuals, who considered him to be in some respects a feminist, not an American feminist, because he had troubles with its psychologizing of, uh, of everything and the way that it seemed to create a distinction between you know, its own liberation and uh, other movements of liberation, finding them at, at war with one another and incompatible, and he, he didn't take to that. But I think that, that, that Edward really sincerely saw a common ground with the feminist project and the Palestinians in the sense that not everything can be easily you know, codified as the left and the right in the traditional uh, class terms that were become accustomed to that and, and, and there's this demand to be heard when so much of the productivity within your area has been squelched is one that he was very familiar with so he was very very much but anyway his friend Akil Bilgrami who he co-taught with said let's teach a course on feminism together 
and he did this thing that he always does uh, or did a lot. Well, he'll stop dead in his tracks as you're walking and then let his jaw drop like, oh, no, don't tell me. What an idea, you know, but not not saying either way, which way he felt. So that was the, that was his uh, his out at the cur at that moment. But uh, I think that's a very good place to end. <laughs> Thank okay. you very much for doing this. And thank you all for for being with us. A very good time. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.